Hello everyone and welcome back to Collateral Poetry, a podcast series revisiting the Victorian female poets Christina Rossetti, Elizabeth Barrett Browning and Emily Brunty. My name is Dil Lander and today we will focus on the theme of death, so brace yourselves for a dark ride. Let's delve right into Victorian poetry once again. Our first poem for today is at once my all-time favorite poem. It is Christina Rossetti's When I Am Dead, My Dearest. Let's have a listen. When I am dead, my dearest, Sing no sad songs for me. Plant thou no roses at my head, nor shady cypress tree. Be the green grass above me, with showers and dewdrops wet. And if thou wilt, remember, and if thou wilt, forget. I shall not see the shadows, I shall not feel the rain. I shall not hear the nightingale sing on as if in pain. And dreaming through the twilight that doth not rise nor set, happily I may remember and happily may forget. I actually hate to admit it, but I always get a tad emotional hearing this poem. What I admire most about Rossetti is her ability to bring to life events and feelings with such apparent ease and subtlety. She is known, of course, for her use of ordinary language and simple imagery, yet her descriptions seem so common and familiar, even today. This poem, When I Am That My Dearest, was written in 1848, when Christina Rossetti was still in her teens. However, it wasn't published until 1862, when it appeared in her first volume of poetry, Goblin Market and Other Poems. First, we'll talk a bit about content. The poem is divided into two stanzas. In the first stanza, the speaker asks her lover that when she dies, he doesn't, that when she dies, sorry, um, he doesn't sing sad songs for her or deposit flowers at her grave. Also, if he chooses to remember her, that's okay with her, but if he forgets her, that would also be fine. In the second stanza, the speaker then explains why she doesn't seem to care whether her lover remembers her, namely because she herself won't be able to see the shadows or feel the rain anymore. Instead, after her death, she'll be dreaming through the twilight. Moreover, she doesn't even know whether she will be able to remember him after her death. Interestingly, Rossetti here deploys the word happily, which means by chance and, and is of course very different from the word happily. By using this word, Rossetti seems to imply her doubts about the existence of a possible afterlife, seemingly reject rejecting sorry, traditional Christian beliefs. Now, let's move on to context. 
This statement that I have discussed um, just now actually seems rather strange, knowing that Rosati herself was part of the Oxford movement, a movement of high church party members which eventually developed into Anglo-Catholicism. Important figures in this movement were Edward Bewery uh, Pusey, John Cabell and John Henry Newman. The movement's philosophy was called Tractarianism and the followers believed that death would save us from the sin that is being alive. They warned their followers not to fall for the temptations of earthly life that were nothing but vain. For Rossetti, as pointed out in the previous episode, religion meant more than something aesthetic. To her, it was something that did not wear her down, but instead strengthened her in her mental and physical illnesses. As I have argued in the previous episode, however, the focus on religion would in fact, or, or Christina, Christina Rossetti's focus on religion, would in fact result in her feeling more depressed because the roots of the problem weren't being dealt with. As D'Amico and Kant argue, Rossetti's constant relapse, you already know by now that um, the poet suffered from Graves' disease, really began to affect her mental health to the extent that she became very scared to die because she didn't feel ready for God's judgment. Judgment day, the day on which God will judge you, whether you will be sent to heaven or to hell, really frightened her. And as a result, it could be possible that her fear eventually transformed into doubt about the possibility of an afterlife. Remember, however, that this poem was written when she was still a teenager and that she probably did not yet suffer from these religious anxieties. Um, but still, the early doubts about religion could already be manifest in the young Christina Rossetti. What's more? The poem departs from the elegies and songs of remembrance that we typically would associate with Victorian poetry. Traditionally, these poems or dirges are pretty sad, but almost every time the reader is asked to lament the person who has died and to remember him or her. Rossetti, on the other hand, presents an unusually stoic idea in When I Am Dead, My Dearest that seems totally free from self-pity. Our next poem stems from a less reserved and more direct poet, Elizabeth Barrett Browning. The poem is called Grief. Let's listen to it. I tell you, Hopeless grief is passionless, that only man, incredulous of despair, half taught in anguish, through the midnight air, beat upward to God's throne in loud access of shrieking and reproach. Full desertness in souls as countries lieth silent bare under the blanching vertical eye glare of the absolute heavens. Deep-hearted man, Express grief for thy dead in silence like to death. Most like a monumental statue set in everlasting watch and moveless woe, till itself crumble to the dust beneath. Touch it, the marble eyelids are not wet, 
If it could weep, it could arise and go. To really understand this poem, it is crucial to know something more about Elizabeth Barrett Browning's personal life. It is generally believed that this poem, Grief, was written shortly after the death of her beloved brother Edward. Edward and Elizabeth were, in fact, very good friends. They often studied together and they were of an equal intellectual disposition. When Elizabeth was 15, she had her first accident while horse riding and she would suffer from spinal pain for the rest of her life. After the abolition of slavery in 1833, her father, Edward Barrett, who was a rich landowner and slave owner in Jamaica, could no longer afford their manor in Herefordshire, and the family settled in Wimpole Street in London. At first, Elizabeth really missed the Malvern Hills, but in London she met like-minded people like Coleridge and Wordsworth, for example, and it wouldn't take long until she was no longer a stranger among literary circles. After a few years in London, however, Elizabeth got ill again. At her physician's insistence, she was sent to a resort in Torquay on the Devonshire coast. Because she was so frightened to leave, her brother Edward decided to join her. Sadly, however, he drowned her in a tragic sailing accident. The death of Edward had a major impact on Elizabeth's life. She actually blamed herself for the accident, since her father had disapproved of Edward staying with her in Torquay. Eventually, Elizabeth moved back to London, because Torquay reminded her too much of her dead brother. In London, she completely withdrew from social life and she isolated herself in a room in 50 Wimpole Street devoting her life to poetry, reading and studying. Moreover, she lived there under the tyrannical rule of her father Edward, who became even more bitter after he had lost his slaves in 1833. So after Edward's death, Elizabeth basically gave up on life as something that is beautiful, and this would take until her encounter and marriage with Robert Browning. Now, a note on the poem itself. The Italian sonnet Grief was first published in Barrett Browning's 1844 collection, um, a two-volume collection titled Poems. The speaker of this poem states that grief is not characterized by exaggerated acts of weeping, wailing and sobbing. Instead, grief turns a person into a desert, into stone. Hence, Elizabeth seems to make a distinction between, on the one hand, true grief and, on the other hand, fake grief. True grief then totally affects the body and soul, transforming a griever into a statue-like figure. Of course, this probably corresponds to how Elizabeth must have felt after her brother's death, sitting all alone and depressed in a room in Wimpole Street. An interesting feature of this poem is Elizabeth's use of a dress. In the very first line, the speaker directs her words directly towards a specific listener, a you, one, would, uh, one could say. This figure could simply be the reader or someone that is more personal in a, uh, Barrett Browning's own entourage. Normally, the volta in a sonnet appears in the transition from the octave to the sussit. 
to desist it. Here, however, I would argue that it occurs in line 8, following the caesura. Following the caesura, the speaker directly addresses a deep-hearted man, and apparently this deep-hearted man has the ability to feel true grief. As I said earlier, only those who are able to grieve in silence know, according to Elizabeth, what true grief is. In the following lines, Elizabeth refers to this griever as a statue, whose eyelids have turned into marble, therefore suggesting that the griever is unable to cry. This, of course, alludes to the first section, in which those who cry are criticised for being fake grievers. A final remark I would like to make about this poem is that Elizabeth uses a sonnet form, a poetic form that is traditionally associated with love poetry. To use the same form to write a poem about grief, pain and death actually seems quite curious. As we have seen, however, in the first episode, in her sonnets from the Portuguese, Elizabeth also subverts the long-standing Petrarchan sonnet tradition. Here, she similarly seems to resist a tradition by using a poetic form that does not match the content. Finally, I hope you're not feeling too sad by now, um, we'll have a look at uh, Emily Bronte's short poem, Spellbound. Enjoy! night is darkening round me, the wild winds coldly blow, but a tyrant spell has bound me, and I cannot, cannot go. The giant trees are bending, their bare boughs weighed with snow, the storm is fast ascending, and yet I cannot go. Clouds beyond clouds above me, wastes beyond wastes below, but nothing drear can move me. I will not, cannot go. Once again, let's first see what this poem is about. In this tree stands a poem, a tyrant spell, immobilizes a speaker, in the sense that she is held captive. I am referring to the speaker as a she here, um, since I will base my understanding of this poem on Emily Bronte herself, but please be aware that it is not explicitly mentioned that um, the speaker is female and that the lyrical eye may in fact not be the exact same as the poet. Even though the speaker seems to be aware that an impending doom is coming her way, she is unable to move. From the very beginning, the setting is described as dreary and gloomy, reminding us, of course, of death. It's nighttime, it's cold, and the wind is blowing. The speaker feels a sense of urgency to remove herself from this dark place, but oddly, she cannot move, and I cannot, cannot go, she utters. The modal verb cannot here seems to express that something or someone else, presumably the tyrant's spell, is holding her back. The repetition of cannot seems to signify that there's really nothing the speaker can do about it. 
There are various possible interpretations, however, as to the meaning of this spell, which I will discuss in a minute. In the second stanza, multiple natural elements are described. The giant trees are bending because they are weighed with snow, revealing to the reader that it is probably winter. Moreover, a storm is descending, which is probably a metaphor for the approaching doom. In the final line of the second stanza, the speaker again utters that she cannot go. Since it is now the second time that this line is repeated, a sense of panic is created. In the final stanza then, the speaker proclaims that there are clouds above her and wastes below her, probably or possibly referring to heaven and hell respectively. In the final line of this poem, then, the speaker interestingly utters, I will not go. This shift in modality seems to signify that it is her own choice not to go, whereas previously cannot seem to refer to something external preventing her from leaving. In what follows, we'll try to figure out what is meant by the tyrant's spell. Presumably, the last stanza hints at the meaning of the spell. The clouds above her and the wastes below her may refer to heaven and hell. The speaker is then probably on the verge of dying and is waiting to be transported either to hell or to heaven. Now, it may be relevant to refresh our memory with Emily Brenty's own religious beliefs. Van Brackelbeus claims that Emily in her work does not seem to believe in the idea of divine retribution by rejecting the idea that earth is merely a temporary abode in which the soul has to prove itself worthy for the eternal abode in heaven. Von Brackelbeus then states or explains that this is the reason why some critics have called Emily's belief system immoral. However, according to Von Brackelbeus, Emily's system is not immoral at all. She simply does not believe in the idea of an external judge, but rather she believes that everyone is responsible for his own acts. According to Emma Mason, another scholar, Emily Brunty was a follower of Methodism, a denomination within Protestant Christianity that derives its doctrine of practice and belief from the life and teachings of the English cleric uh, John Wesley. His followers were named Methodists for the methodical way in which they carried out their Christian faith. Wesleyan Methodists put forward the conception of free will, as opposed to the theological determinism of absolute predestination. Methodism teaches its followers that salvation is only possible when someone voluntarily chooses to respond to God. They interpret the Bible as teaching that the salvation work of Jesus Christ is available for everyone, which is the idea of unlimited atonement, but that it is only effective to those who freely respond to God and believe in the, reforma in the Reformation principles of sola gratia, grace alone, and sola fide, faith alone. If we keep von Brackelbeus's and Mason's ideas in mind, the poem may, on the one hand, express Emily's rejection of the traditional Christian deterministic idea of absolute predestination, 
in which God is the external judge. On the other hand, this poem also seems to express Bronte's fear for her own judgment, expressing doubt whether she lived an honest life and whether she followed the Methodist principles uh, strictly enough. We should keep in mind that Emily's life was characterized by disappointment, pain and hardship. The family suffered from financial problems and as a result Anne and Charlotte, her sisters, worked as governesses for a while. Emily, however, yeah, she couldn't really handle this feeling of humiliation and submission. Death was also familiar to the family. Her mother, her aunt, her two sisters, Mariah and Elizabeth, all died in the course of Emily's short life. Her brother Branwell then became addicted to alcohol and to opium and eventually died as well. Charlotte suffered from depression. So it is clear that Emily must have felt awful a lot of the time and hence it wouldn't be strange if she had her own doubts about life itself. A final note on this poem. As I have pointed out before, Emily Brunty is known for her natural mysticism. The nature she deploys in her poems can be both terrifying and inaccessible, but also lovely and beautiful. Her description of natural elements in this poem at first glance seemed to undergird the wildness of nature, yet her use of alliteration, for example, bare bows, weighed with, wild winds, also bestow a certain aesthetic value upon them. So that's it for today. Um, I really hope you enjoyed this second episode focusing on the theme of death. Uh, in this episode we discussed uh, Christina Rossetti's When I Am Dead My Dearest, Elizabeth Barrett Browning's Grief and uh, Emily Brunty's Spellbound. See you next time. Bye-bye.